Well, I'd like for you to go in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Psalm, Psalm 89, if you would, please, Psalm 89. And as I mentioned a moment ago, we remain here in a holding pattern. You know what a holding pattern is, right? Especially if you fly a lot. It might be coming in to land at Charlotte on your way home. Maybe the clouds aren't right. Maybe the rain is a little heavy. Perhaps there's a lot of traffic on the runway, and so the pilot comes on the airway, and he says, we're in a little bit of a holding pattern. That simply means we're, we're eventually going to get there. We're eventually going to land, but right now we're going to circle a little bit until we do. Well, that's kind of how I feel right now since we ended Ezra and are making plans to jump into Nehemiah. We're in a, we're in a little bit of a, uh, a holding pattern. And uh, with all the events going on, I felt it was best to just go on to the next psalm. And we did this a couple of weeks ago in looking at Psalm 98, or excuse me, rather, Psalm 88. And uh, this evening, we're going to go look at Psalm 89. Now, before we read the psalm, you might find it helpful to remember that the book of Psalms is actually structured into five distinct books itself. Uh, some of you will see that in your Bibles as you read through them. In fact, if you look at the beginning of Psalm chapter 90, at least in, in my book it, or my Bible, it says book 4 over top of Psalm 90. That's letting you know that uh, you've come to the conclusion of the third book uh, here in the uh, literature of the Psalms, and you're getting ready to begin the, the fourth book. So just to give you some kind of framework of this, uh, book 1 of the Psaltery uh, covers Psalm 1 all the way through Psalm 41. Uh, book 2 of the Psaltery uh, covers Psalm 42 all the way through Psalm 72. Book 3 begins at Psalm 73, and it ends uh, right here at Psalm 89. So since we began Psalm 1 many years ago during these holding patterns between series, we have now made it to the conclusion of the third book of the Psalms, and uh, we have two more to go as the Lord uh, leads us in this timing. So we're concluding book three here with Psalm 89. It's rather lengthy, but I think it's important that we read it all in one setting before we uh, break it down together tonight, all right? So Psalm 89, this is a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. And awesome above all. Who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. 
The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring will endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Selah. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease, and you have cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame, Selah. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. 
Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Psalm 89 is another psalm of lament, but with a slightly different tone from what we saw a couple of weeks ago in our study of Psalm 88, by which I remind you, Spurgeon called Psalm 88 the darkest of all the psalms. And the reason why it is often reviewed and confirmed even in our study that Psalm 88 is the darkest of all the psalms is because within it we see a lot of distress. We see a lot of hopelessness, but we don't see any ray of light. We don't see any note of hope. And so in Psalm 88, we have the darkest of all the psalms. It is a great psalm of lament. Psalm 89, similar, but with a slightly different In fact, Psalm 89 begins with Ethan, who's the writer of the psalm, choosing to sing praise to God, even in the midst of this corporate distress in Israel. That's something we didn't see in Psalm 88. In fact, it began with a low note of distress, and it ended with a low note of distress. It began with no hope, it ended with no hope. And there's no singing whatsoever, but at least here, when we turn the page to Psalm 89, the distress is still there. Uh, The season of difficulty still is among them. But at least there's some praise, there's some Singing, they're, they're choosing to sing praises to God even in the midst of their distress. You see, the backdrop of this psalm is written when the kingdom of Israel was in shambles and the covenant throne of David felt like a, a ticking time bomb. To Israel, it appeared like God was abandoning the promise of the unending throne of David. And so they're in a great season of despair because in their minds, everything God had promised them through the throne of David appears to be eroding. It appears as if God has taken back his promise because everything is crumbling right before their very eyes. If I could summarize Psalm 89 in one simple line, here's how I'd summarize it. Psalm 89 is about singing faithfully when we cannot see clearly. Psalm 89 is about singing faithfully when we cannot see clearly. That's the condition of Ethan, the writer here. It's the condition of the whole corporate scene of Israel. They cannot see things clearly, but yet what are they choosing to do? They are choosing to sing faithfully. And so it is often in our lives when we come 
to seasons and to moments and to circumstances where we cannot see clearly. And even then, we must choose to sing faithfully to our God. Well, here's how Psalm 89 leads. Just three things I want you to see from the text this evening. Number one, it leads us, first of all, to worship him, to worship him, to worship the Lord. That covers verses 1 through 18. Well, the psalm opens up with a resolve, and here's the resolve. Look at it there in verse 1. Uh, Ethan, the psalmist, says, I will sing. That's the resolve. I will. I will. I, I'm, not, I'm not thinking about doing this. No, I, I will do it. I'm committed to it. I'm devoted to it. I'm, I'm resolved to do it. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness. He is choosing to sing, and he's choosing to sing publicly. He says, with my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness. I will make known your faithfulness. I will share of your goodness. I will sing of your character. I will express in my praise and worship just how mighty and awesome you are, just how faithful you have been to us, your people. He is choosing to sing publicly. It's a choice that we all need to make when we cannot see clearly. That's not our natural response. When we can't see clearly because of the difficulties and the despair around us, we, we, we tend to shut down. We tend to withdraw. We tend to be very, very quiet, especially in public. Maybe the songs that we sing in our corporate worship we once sang to the top of our lungs were barely getting out in a hum. But here the psalmist says, I will choose to sing, and I will sing with my mouth, making known your faithfulness. I'm going to do this publicly. He's also choosing to sing praise. He's choosing to sing praise. He talks about in verse 1 of the steadfast love of the Lord. This is what I'm going to sing. I'm going to praise God for his steadfast love. I'm going to praise God for his faithfulness. He's singing praise to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with singing songs about our own feelings as he will do throughout this psalm as we sing throughout the psaltery. But here we see a note reminding us that at the heart of our singing, it ought to always be pointed back to the rich and full character of God. He is singing praise about who God is. He is faithful. He is merciful. He is Steadfast, he is loving, and he's choosing to sing perpetually. He's choosing to sing perpetually. Notice again what he says. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever, forever. And this is an ongoing song. No matter how bleak it gets, no matter how dark the circumstances may be, no matter how blurry my vision is when it comes to this season of my life, I will still choose to sing. I will sing forever and always. I'll sing perpetually. But notice he's also choosing to sing purposefully, purposely. He wants with his mouth, with his song, with his voice to make known the faithfulness of God to all. All generations. That's his purpose. 
His purpose in singing this is so that his children and that his children's children and that their children will also know that our God is a faithful God and a loving God and a, and a merciful God. This is why singing ought to be a regular part of our lives, not only in worship. I feel hypocritical saying that tonight because we're not singing tonight. <laughs> But under normal circumstances, right, when we gather, we are singing together. We can't miss that. Well, we neither need to neglect it in our personal lives. As we sing with our families in our homes, going down the road, reminding through the gift of song just how great and worthy and awesome that our God is. We've got to acknowledge that here. There is an emphasis on singing. Singing. You see, worship is the way we ascribe worth to God, value to God. That's where we get the word worship from. Wor comes from worth, okay? Uh, worth-ship. Worthy-ship is the nuance of the word. So our worship is just how valuable we think God is. When we worship, how we worship is a declaration of how worthy God is to us, how much he's worth to us, how valuable he is in our lives. And singing is one of many ways that we do this, but this is not a suggestion to simply take into consideration. It is a command from Scripture that we ignite hearts of worship through lips of praise. He can't see very clearly, but he is determined to sing faithfully. Now, it's easy when we talk about singing to think that he must be experiencing a good season of his life, a good time. He's whistling a happy tune along the way, but we can't ignore the circumstances here. And in verses 3 and 4, he gives us a little preview as to what he will go into later. He is choosing to sing of the covenant-keeping faithfulness of God. Especially, especially as it relates to God's covenant with David, that the offspring of David's throne will never end. That was the promise God made. That was the covenant that he established with David. This is what the nation of Israel are holding on to, that David's throne will never be destroyed. It will never be upended. It will never stop God has promised to perpetuate the offspring of David, the throne of David, forever. But as we will see in a moment, it doesn't appear in their present circumstance that this covenant at all will be kept. So again, he is singing, he's worshiping, he is ascribing praise to the steadfast love and faithfulness of God in a season where singing joyful songs of praise is not always our natural response. But it is here that we must keep our focus on the character of God. That's how Ethan, the psalmist, begins. He talks about in verse 1, the character of God's steadfast love. And then he continues on by addressing the character of God's faithfulness. These are all unchanging characteristics of a God. He is a God of steadfast love. He is a God who is faithful. He continues in verse 6 by acknowledging that God is incomparable. 
He is so great that nothing compares to God. Who, verse 6, in the skies can be compared to the Lord? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Because no one can be compared to God. He is greater than the great. He is higher than the highest. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. No one or nothing can compare to God. He is, verse 7, awesome above all. I love that little adjective describing who God is. He is awesome above all. When we can't think of another way to describe him, let's just say it the way we feel it. He is an awesome God. He is an awesome God. That's what the psalmist is saying. Verse 8, he is mighty. Again, these are all characteristics. He's mighty. He's awesome. He's incomparable. He's faithful. He's in a dark period of his life, but what is he focusing on? At least for now, he's not focused on the darkness. At this moment, he's focused upon how great God is. In verses 9 through 13, he tells us that God rules over everything. In other words, nothing is out of his control. The seas are not out of his control. The environment is not out of his control. Your cancer is not out of his control. He rules over everything. All is under the control of God. That's verse 9 through 13. But notice how he emphasizes it in verse 11. He says, the heavens belong to God. The earth also belongs to God. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. He is reminding himself through song that our God is a sovereign God. And he is not just sovereign over the things that we want to pick and choose. He is sovereign over all things. And if he is not sovereign over all things, he is not sovereign over anything. The whole world is his. And everything that happens within the world is under his direct control. And then finally, in verses 14 through 18, he looks to God in this song and he says, you are perfectly righteous and you're faithfully just. Verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. You rule in righteousness. Your sovereignty is governed by what you feel is just. In everything you do, it is done in steadfast love. It is done in faithfulness to your people. You see, by declaring, church family, this fact about God's character, the psalmist is acknowledging that God always does what is right. He always does what is right. Some of us just need to be reminded of that simple little phrase we've heard a hundred times in our life, if not more. God always does what is right. Whatever it is going on in our lives tonight, he always does what is right. He is never unjust. He is never unfair. The only thing unfair that God has ever done has allowed us to partake in his holiness through the gift of grace which we do not deserve. That's what's unfair. God is never unjust. He always does what is right, and everything will work together for good. Friends, this is the heart of worship. No matter how things appear, no matter how things feel, 
When we sing, we must sing from our hearts what we know to be true. What we know to be true. And that is God's love is steadfast and God's promises are faithful. You see, the more you and I accept the fact that God is in complete control of everything, the more we can relax. The more that we accept the fact that God is in control of everything, the more that we can relax. Spurgeon said, it is the sovereignty of God which is the pillow I lay my head down on at night and sleep. However, the more I think I know better than God, the more I will sink into the despairs of anxiety. So here we see the psalmist Ethan, the Ezraite, leading us to worship him. Pretty good here. Confidently he leads us. The second thing he leads us to do is to trust him. Worship him, trust him. Worship God, trust God. And that covers verses 19 through 37. And beginning in verse 19, Ethan here talks about all that God did for the throne of David. That's his focus. He gave us a little intro to it in verses 3 and 4, letting us know that this is where he's going, okay? That all this singing about the steadfast love of God and the faithfulness of God, it's within the context of God's covenant with David. And then he goes on focusing on the character of God. Well, now he's back. He's back at the issue that is in front of him. And that is everything that God has done for the throne of David, how that he chose David. You see that beginning in verses 19 and 20. God chose David, how he strengthened and protected David, how he honored David for the glory of the Lord's name. I find that a very helpful reminder. Again, we're not going to go back and read it, but when you follow the sequence of those verses, you can see a very good following of salvation here. How that God, in his grace, he, he chooses us and he strengthens us through the, the grace of his son, Jesus. And why does he do this? He does not do it for the glory of our name. He does it for the glory of the Lord's name. Salvation is not primarily about us. Salvation is primarily about God. That's why we hold to the pillars of the Reformation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. God chose David not because David was anything special. God chose David because he believed it was through David his glory would be most exalted. So God chooses David, God strengthens David, God protects David, God honors David for the glory of his own name. And then God makes a covenant with David, a covenant that his dynasty would exist forever. Now the remarkable part of this section is what God says from verses 30 to 37. In fact, I want us to read these verses again. Look at verse 30. If his children, that is David's children, forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Stop right here for a moment. 
This ought to be a reminder to us that God takes sin in our life extremely seriously. And he will discipline us for our disobedience to him. This God did with David as we just came out of our study of 1st and 2nd Samuel. David experienced the heavy hand of God's discipline in his life. And every Christian in this room along the journey of life can pinpoint moments in where God's heavy discipline was on our hearts. Because he doesn't overlook sin. He takes sin seriously. And he did this with all the kings who followed David. So much of the exiles and captivity and and the times in which God permitted even men like Nebuchadnezzar to come in and take God. This was all because of his discipline upon the throne. They had not followed God faithfully. They had not honored him. They had forsaken God's law. They had disobeyed him. And God carried out exactly what he said he would. If you do not faithfully follow me, you will experience my hand of discipline. But, verse 33, look at it, but God goes on to say, I will not remove from him my steadfast love. I will not be untrue to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once and for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I love that phrase here. God's promises are based upon his own character, his own holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring will endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it will be established forever as a faithful witness in the sky. You see what he's saying here? Your sin will be disciplined. But nothing, not even our own unfaithfulness, can frustrate the purposes of God. (laughs) David may disobey me, his sons may disobey me, and every king follow him may forsake me, but I will not forsake my promise, my love will not be removed. I've sworn this by my holiness. And that, and to that I will be true. You know, one of my favorite verses is in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. Do you realize tonight that if it was possible for you to lose your salvation, you would? If it was possible for a true believer to lose his salvation, he would. And he would lose it every day, over and over again. But even in that moment, when we are faithless, God does not withdraw his covenant hand and love off of our lives. He is faithful. He cannot deny himself. Here's the bottom line, church family. God cannot lie. What he promises, he will fulfill. So we can sing of his steadfast love and we can sing of his faithfulness because he will not violate his own 
holiness. He did not lie to David, and he will not lie to his chosen today. You and I can trust his word. You say, Pastor, this is all good stuff. I thought you said this was a psalm of lament. And we we do remember what lament is. Psalms of darkness and distress and despair and trouble. The first 37 verses, it appears that everything we've been saying is nothing but confidence from Ethan the Ezraite. The psalmist here is showing us a pretty positive outlook on God and his blessings to us. Well, it's in verse 38 that the lament, the despair, the questions come. Look at verse 38. But now, but now, after all this he said in the first 37 verses about the character of God and his covenant with David and how he promised not to destroy his offspring, he says, but now, but now you have cast off and rejected. He's talking to God here. But now you're full of wrath against your anointed, the one that you've chosen. Verse 39, you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his ground in the dust. In other words, after everything I just said about your character, your covenant with David, and your trustworthiness, it seems that you've gone back on your word. It seems that you've gone back on your word. And here's where I want you to write down the third point. We've looked at how Psalm 89 shows us to worship him and to trust him. But the third thing here is Psalm 89 shows us to wait for him. To wait for him. Now, we don't know for sure the exact crisis that prompted this issue with the throne of David. Some have speculated that it was during Absalom's rebellion that this psalm might have been written, possibly. Some have suggested or speculated that it was during the spiritual decline of David's son Solomon. Others have suggested that it happened during the entire kingdom decline after Solomon's death. All things that we can read throughout the writings of the kings and the chronicles. It is possible, however... (laughs) whenever we're looking at these things, that sometimes events like this that cannot be found in our cross-references might not actually be recorded in the Bible at all. It could very well be a fresh or a new experience that he is addressing as he is writing this. The, The problem, however, at hand is that due to the circumstances, it felt, and I emphasize the word felt, it felt like God had abandoned the covenant. That's why he's crying out in verse 38. You've now cast off and you've rejected and you're full of wrath. You've renounced the covenant of your servant. After everything I've just said, Ethan now says, it feels like, God, you've abandoned your promise. It appeared that God had not been as steadfast, as loving, and as faithful as his character seemed. The entire section from verse 38 all the way down to the end of verse 51 is the psalmist laying out a case that made him believe that God had went back on his word. So again, we don't have time to go back and reread it, but you can see it there. The rest of it is one big complaint. Believing or expressing his belief 
as to why he thought God had changed his mind. Now the question is, why did he ultimately feel this way? Well, let me, let me give you one word to think about and just chew on it. My opinion, I believe that he felt this way because of expectation. Expectation. Now, I say that because expectations control how we interpret experience. Think about it for a moment, okay? Expectations control how we interpret experience. Yeah, you, 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 you go on your vacation, right? You might get an email when you, when you get back. And the email might say, how would you rate your experience? And through all the questions, we're going to rate our experience for the most part on what we expected going into it, right? And if the expectations are off just slightly, our experience will not feel the same. It's like I, I, uh, I have recently noticed at local Chick-fil-A's, I don't know why this bothers me so much, but they don't say my pleasure like they used to. Anybody else notice this? Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's the local one. I don't know. I go through the line. I place my, you know, they used to greet me very politely. Now they say, what's up? Like, what's, what's up? I thought it's, how may we serve you, sir? That's what I'm used to. And then when they bring me my drink and my Cobb salad with honey mustard dressing on it, or when I'm feeling really cool, my waffle fries and chicken sandwich, I grab it and I look at them waiting, you know, waiting for the, after I say thank you, my pleasure. Well, they've stopped saying it. I'm wondering what in the world's going on. And then I drive away and I feel like my experience is a little subpar right now. The food hasn't changed. They were kind. They're doing their job. I mean, moving me quickly. It's amazing how many cars they can move on. But that one little expectation, I've, I've heard it almost my whole life. I expect to hear my pleasure. But that one little expectation now has got me all quirked out about my experience with the new Chick-fil-A down the road. Now, we, we can laugh about that, and it is silly. But the truth is, this is how we judge all areas of life. If you walk into an average room in your house today and somebody tells you as you walk into your bedroom, welcome to your prison cell, you might think to yourself, well, this is pretty nice, not a bad place for prison. But if you were to walk in that same room and somebody said, welcome to your honeymoon suite, you might think, what? This is not my honeymoon suite. This is nothing I imagine my honeymoon suite to be. It's, it's all about expectations. So, so let's take it back to the psalmist. That the psalmist thought the language of David's throne being established forever meant that the political nation of Israel would never fail. It would never go under. It was the same thing with the disciples and Jesus. Both groups read into his situation with their own expectation. The Messiah was going to come and overthrow the Romans and we're going to rule and reign as a dominant nation in the world. But that was not Jesus' initial plan. And in both cases, whether it's related to the psalmist in David's reign and the disciples in Jesus' messiahship, 
they kind of walk away a little bit disappointed because he and they have not met their expectation. Well, the same thing happens to us. When we bring our expectations to God's promises, but then discover that God had something completely different in mind, we quickly become disappointed with God. But can I help you tonight? That's not his fault. That's our fault. That's our fault. Because we haven't taken the time to wait on him and to truly learn what his purposes are all about. Timothy Keller said it like this. God always fulfills his promises. But he does so at a level of greater complexity than we can sometimes easily discern. It's true, isn't it? We know God's going to come through, but we often wonder why in the world is he doing it that way? Why doesn't he choose to go about it this way? Here's the lesson. The lesson is wait on God. And while you wait on him, trust him and worship him. And the truth is you may be in a season right now where it's not all that clear to you if or even how God has been steadfast and faithful in your life. But do not judge the character and promises of God on the basis of how you feel. Do not judge the character and faithfulness and promises of God based upon what appears to be happening around you. Things are not always as they seem. And it's easy to miss that as we look at the chaos, isn't it? Is God in control? Does God even know what's going on to me? Why would God allow that to happen? Listen to me. Things are not always as they appear. It may appear as chaos, but it's not chaos. <laughs> it's God fulfilling his purposes. It's God doing what Joseph declared in Genesis chapter 50. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. He is working all things together for the glory of his purposes and the good of his will. So church family, what we learn from Psalm 89 is to sing faithfully when we cannot see clearly. Worship him, trust him, wait for him. And I acknowledge that some of us may even be here sitting tonight actually disappointed with God. Remember, if you're feeling disappointed with him, it's mainly because you, you can't, you can't see all that clearly right now. So don't walk out on him. What you do know is that God's love is steadfast and his character is faithful. I close with this statement as we read from verse 52. There have been often debate, verse 52, where does it fall on? I think most scholars see, and I tend to believe with this opinion, that verse 52 is placed here at the conclusion of the book not at the conclusion of the psalmist. 
But, but either way, either way, it magnifies an important lesson. Psalm 52, or Psalm 89, verse 52, blessed be the Lord forever. The Spurgeon commented on this verse. He said, if we cannot understand him, we dare not distrust him. If we cannot understand him, we dare not distrust him. Oh, may God, may God help us to think.